Hello everyone, and welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So, before we get started on this amazing new episode for Give Me an Answer, I'd like to go ahead and do a shout out to my sponsor, Spotify. Here's the commercial. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. I want to thank you for listening to the our sponsor, Spotify. And I hope that you guys go ahead before we get started here and like and subscribe to the podcast, wherever you'd be listening to this podcast at all. This episode is going to be titled, if I can bring it up here, Does the Bible Speak to This Generation? It's a big question a lot of us have asked, especially with this um, the new generation. Before I get started here, I actually heard this tonight from my wife, that the new generation, I think, is Generation Z or X, one of those ones right after the Millennials, is considered the hopeless generation. Isn't that interesting? Kind of reminds me of the hippies in nineteen late 1960s and early 90s. Considered hopeless. So without further ado, it's going to be um, the pastors Cliff and Stu Kinekley who are going to be out there talking. They, if you're interested in them, they are over in Grace Community Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. So without further ado, please enjoy the program. If God's all-loving, if God's good, and if he's all-powerful, then why is there suffering? I do not know. But I do know that if there is no God, it's just fate. You see, friends, that is the despair, the logical despair of atheism, if you're going to be intellectually consistent. When it comes to morality, I feel the Bible can be a little bit outdated at times. Like, I don't have to worry about... um, Getting a girl pregnant now, if you have a condom and stuff like that. If I love her, why can't I engage in that kind of activity? Excellent question. When you say you love her and you want to have sex with her outside of marriage, a lifelong commitment, what do you mean? When you use the word love, what does that mean? I I will the good of her, and I feel she wills the good of me. Okay. And I I really just I like I like her a lot. Good. All right. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Now, according to Christ, the gift of sexuality is a beautiful gift from God. It's not dirty. It's not wrong. It's a tremendous gift from God. But it's a gift that God gave us for a purpose. And we read about that purpose in Genesis 2, 24. We read, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Becoming one, a lifelong commitment to each other. Within the context of a lifelong commitment, sex is to be enjoyed. Why? Well, obviously, one of the reasons is without commitment, sex is using a person to get a thrill. And God says, guess what? A woman is not a cute Barbie doll. A woman is not a sex object. A woman is a precious human being created in the image of God, with innate value, with innate significance. And therefore, to use her as a sex trinket is wrong because it's devaluing a woman. And I think if you're a woman, you understand exactly what I'm saying right now. That if some guy just wants to use you sexually, that's dehumanizing. And for us guys, I think if we think about it enough, we begin to realize, Oh, yeah, that's true. This fall, I was speaking at UNC Chapel Hill. 
and a tight end for the football team was out there. And he said, Cliff, I'm a follower of Christ. But my teammates began to jam on me because I wouldn't have one night stands with different women. And they put so much pressure on me that eventually I gave in and I started having sex with whoever I wanted to. But it didn't take too long before I began to experience some real guilt. And I asked, really, why did you experience that guilt? He said, because I began to realize I'm just using a woman. And guess what? God did not create us to use each other. He created us to love each other. And when it comes to sex, God says, it's a beautiful gift. Use it within the context of a lifelong commitment. Knowing that like, my ancestors were forced to learn about Christianity and it really wasn't their choice, how can we say like Christianity is all loving, but yet you know, it enslaved people that look like me? And you know, they, they didn't have a choice on whether or not they wanted to accept the gospel, but you know, it was kind of forced upon them. And they were brought over here on boats and stuff. So. Like, how, did, how does that show a loving God if, you know, you just enslave a bunch of people and force them to learn about it? Difficult, painful question. Thank you so much for raising it. Why are all human beings equal? If there is no God, human beings are not all equal. If there is no God, it is survival of the fittest. And if you, little child, have a weird genetic breakdown, horrible birth defects, why shouldn't I allow you to die rather quickly? to wipe out that horrible genetic pool that you obviously have. See, that is the logical consequence of atheism. That's a logical consequence of secularism. I'll tell you why we don't wipe out children with birth defects. Because all human beings are created with equal value because they're all created in the image of God. And the same thing applies to the race issue. All human beings, regardless of their ethnic heritage, regardless of their race, are created in the image of God. What does that mean? It means we're all created to reflect God, to reflect God's character, his love, his justice, his integrity, his faithfulness, his kindness, his generosity. So, I'm tired of being confronted by white Christians who say, Oh, I can't believe in Jesus because all those Christian hypocrites. Well, buddy, all you need to do is meet my African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. Their forefathers and foremothers were pressed into slavery and were brought to church on Sunday by white Christians. If anybody on this campus has a right to reject Christ because of Christian hypocrites, it's my African-American brothers and sisters. But what have my African-American brothers and sisters done? They've had the open-mindedness and the intellectual honesty to go to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what do you find there? You do not find a racist white Jesus. You don't find a racist black Jesus. You don't find a racist Hispanic Jesus. You don't find a racist Jewish Jesus. Instead, you find a Jewish man who claims to be more than a man. He claims to be God in human form. And in one of his best-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, he makes a direct frontal attack on racism, and he teaches that we are created by God to love and respect every single human being. Oh, but come on, Cliff, you know very well that in South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and 
Maryland, those slave owners, they enslaved African Americans and then they brought them to church on Sunday. And you know how they used the Bible to justify slavery. Yes, that is unfortunately an historical fact. Yes, I do know that happened. But when you read the Bible carefully, you will notice that racism is evil according to the scriptures. Because racism is denigrating a valuable human being created in the image of God. First passage, Genesis chapter 1. We're all created in the image of God. Second passage, Exodus. The second biggest miracle of the Old Testament, the Exodus from Egypt. What's God doing? He is saving the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt, and he's freeing them. Third passage, Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon. He tells a synagogue packed with Jewish people, and guess what, guys? God loves Gentiles just as much as he loves you Jews. And these Jewish people are irate. They grab Jesus, and they try to throw him to his death off a cliff. He turns around and walks right through him. Why did Christ almost get executed after his first sermon? Because he made a direct frontal attack on racism. Jewish superiority over Gentile. And he almost paid for it with his life. Then when you get to Galatians 3.28, we read, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. And then you get to Revelation chapter 7, and all of a sudden you read, In heaven... There will be people from every tribe, language, people, and nation around the throne of Christ. Heaven is going to be populated with all types of different people, with all types of different racial, ethnic heritages. So to try and act like those white preachers 200 years ago here in the United States who taught that slavery is good and it's God-ordained and it's biblical, they were wrong, flat-out wrong. If you read the Bible... Honestly, reading in context, respecting literary style, they were flat out wrong. Read the Gospels for yourself. Don't take it from me. Go to the source documents and examine the historical Jesus of Nazareth and ask yourself, does the evidence point to Christ being reliable or does it not? And then based on the evidence, you make your own wise decision. Stuart, what do you think? Frederick Douglass is one of my favorites to answer this question. Is Frederick Douglass, abolitionist, black man, evangelist. Who did he pour scorn on the most? It was the church, because he said the church had hidden motives. The church was all about peddling a different form of religion. It was not about the gospel and free grace. It was not about all are created in God's image. It was not about calling somebody of different ethnic heritage, even brother, not just neighbor. And he said, the church man, the average church man during that time period was the man who was most hell bound. I think that's pretty powerful. He wasn't talking about those who were godless. He wasn't talking about those who were, who were white and lost. He was saying any, whatever the ethnicity in the church was hell bound because of these hidden motives. Then I would go to during the Civil War, you have the North and the South. Okay, all different types of motives for peddling certain passages in Scripture. When Paul talks about slaves, obey your masters, for example. Well, you could take that and say, see, you're supposed to be a slave. Paul clearly says it. Now follow it. No, it was actually the Free Church of Scotland that stepped in and said, you North and South, and especially the South at the time, unfortunately, you, you Southerners are totally getting this wrong, and you know it. You're getting it wrong to make a buck. 
to make, obviously, a financial gain. Now get it right because you know in the context what that verse means and why Paul talks about it. So it's really the hidden motive of the church and those outside of the church that promoted slavery and said, look, slaves, Paul and even Christ want you to be slaves for life. I'm in geology 101, so Good. I know my stuff. Right. It, it's just like it, you know, the whole creation story, especially with the making of the earth in seven days, making of the world and the heavens. It's just, I don't know. It, it just doesn't make a ton of sense to me, given what I've learned in college. So. Great point. Thanks for raising it. Science answers the question, how does the process, biology, chemistry, physics work? The Bible never answers the question, how does the process work? The Bible answers the question, who? Who created the process? I, as a follower of Christ, have no problem with evolution as a process. I, as a follower of Christ, have profound problem with evolution as an origin. For evolution as an origin says, behind the process, there's no intelligent mind, there's chance and fate. Give me a break. That is not science, that is philosophy. The question, is there an intelligent mind behind the process of evolution, is not addressed by science. So, I turn to science when I want the answer. How does the body work? How does nature work? How do the stars work? I do not go to the Bible. But when I want an answer to the question, who created, I go to the book of Genesis, I go to the Bible, because that is the question, the philosophical, theological question that Genesis is answering. Who created? There once was a family of mice. They lived in a piano. They so enjoyed the music that came from the piano player. But one day, one of the little mice got really brave, and he climbed up even further into the piano, and he found out that the music did not come from a piano player. The music came from wires that reverberated. So the little mouse returned to his family of mice and said, hey, guess what, guys, we were wrong. There's no great piano player. There are these wires that reverberate, and that's where the music comes from. Well, the family of mice no longer believed in a piano player because they had a totally scientific, totally mechanistic understanding of their universe. The wires, that's where the music came from. Until one day, one of the little mice got even braver. He climbed up a little further into the bowels of the piano, and lo and behold, to his astonishment, he found out, oh, it's not the wires that create the music, it's the hammers. The hammers strike the wires. That's what really makes the music. And so he returned to his family of mice. They totally redid their understanding of their universe. But the fact is, they still enjoyed the music that came from the piano player. Science is a tremendous study of process be it biology, chemistry, physics, it's excellent. But it does not even seek to answer the question if they're being honest. Who created? Who is the great piano player who creates the music? Science can answer the question. If I put strychnine into grandma's tea, what will happen to her? And science will tell me, she will die. Science cannot answer the question in light of the fact that my grandma is a millionaire and I would really like the inheritance next week. 
Why should I not put strychnine in grandma's tea? Science is moot on that point. There is no way that you can scientifically prove a moral platform. So scientifically, you cannot tell me why I should not put strychnine in grandma's tea in order to get her inheritance next week. That is a philosophical, theological question that is based on we're created by God for a purpose and it is evil to put strychnine or any other poison in grandma's tea motivated by greed, motivated by a desire to get more money for myself. Does that make any sense? Story, what do you have to say about well, that? Well, the greatest miracle that atheists and theists both believe in, as well as agnostics, typically the average one at least, is right out of the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation. In the beginning, there was a beginning. I think most cosmologists would accept that, at least the ones I've read and I've talked to. Secondly, understanding that even Charles Darwin talked about how there are no gods, that's for sure, but he said there are no basis for ethics and morality. There absolutely is no free will. Everybody is determined. And there is no meaning in life for a fellow atheist. So Charles Darwin questioned himself all life long. And we know the suffering he went through, obviously, had a lot to do with ultimately his decision on how to view God. It wasn't evolution primarily. And then thirdly and finally, supernatural. How, how would you define supernatural? Or what do you think of when you hear the word supernatural? Beyond, beyond what I see every day and beyond my understanding. Boom. Nailed it. Super above... <laughs> super above naturalism, let's say. Okay? Okay. Well, I believe in angels. The atheist believes in human rights. That's just as big of a leap in terms of understanding the supernatural as the one who believes in angels. Because how in the world do you get things like justice, love, self-sacrifice, love even for enemy, from the strong eating the weak? That's a joke. It's a total joke. That's a supernatural leap in the dark. So science can't answer these huge questions that we all deal with every single day, even if it's holding the door open and missing the first 30 seconds of class because you wanted to help somebody who was struggling to get through the door. Because you're going to sacrifice and you're perhaps going to miss the beginning of what's going to be on the next test that the teacher's going to talk about. So there's supernatural leaps that even the scientist takes that he doesn't or she doesn't reflect on very regularly. So I hope you're getting one of the points that we've sort of been headed towards, which is if you're an atheist or if you're an agnostic and you try and argue that love is a real value, or if you try and argue that justice is a real value, you are an intellectual hypocrite. Now don't take that from me. Just read Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Friedrich Nietzsche, all the great atheistic existentialist and nihilistic philosophers. If my birth is an accident, and if my death is an accident, it follows that the only thing between those two accidents is another accident, me, you. Which means to argue that love is real as a value. To argue that it's really wrong for me to take out a knife and stab him is ridiculous. It's not wrong. It might be wrong from your perspective, but it's totally relative. From my perspective, knifing him in order to get his money might be a good thing to do. 
It is only if there is a God, meaning by that a mind prior to the human mind, who defines right and wrong, who defines that he has innate value, that is the basis for understanding, for me to knife him in order to steal his money, is absolutely evil. And for you to try and argue, if you're an atheist or an agnostic, that to abuse an innocent child is absolutely wrong. You've been smoking something, buddy. You're out to lunch. If there is no God, it's relatively wrong to abuse an innocent child. It's not absolutely wrong. Because if there is no God, there's matter and energy. And there's no mind to define values, to, de to define human value, human significance. So science, question you asked, is a wonderful branch of knowledge. But guess what? Don't go on a scientific date. Go on a personal date and get to know a human being who's not just a bag of chemicals. Get to know a woman, not because she's beautiful and you want to hop into bed with her. Get to know a woman because she's a human being creating the image of God. And to relate and connect and build a friendship where there's loyalty and commitment and trust that's really cool. That is really good. Thank you, sir, for raising that thoughtful question, man. Appreciate it. Are you so sure of the holiness of Jesus Christ and the importance of him when there are people from other continents, other countries, billions of people who developed uh, separately than us like as a Western civilization and have a completely different set of beliefs and also are very devoted to their faith. Thank you so much for raising it. Stuart, what do you think? It was only Jesus Christ who said, you have to come through me to be saved. Now, the claim out of the Gospels, which are historical sources, there's six of them, just two ancient historians would say are historical painter. We got six. The claim is that even enemy attestation of Kelsis, of Josephus, of others, said that this man claimed to be sinless, and he was sinless. And then you have those who were obviously part of his inner circle, the disciples, claiming that he was sinless, and that he never spoke even a word out of turn, that he had tremendous balance of understanding when to speak out and having righteous indignation, and when to say even to a woman at the well who was a prostitute looked down by, on, by everybody in that culture to say, come to me graciously. Know that I'm going to give you eternal life. Fill your eternal desires, that God-shaped hole in you because you have five husbands. That's not doing it, obviously. You're a little depressed here at this well. And understand how I can fill that God-shaped hole. So there are many, there were many Messiah movements back then of great teachers who ultimately the Romans squashed most of them and they were killed and their followers dispersed. But why was it that Jesus Christ, who made these claims to be God, who through his followers as well as enemy attestation lived this phenomenal holy life and then the evidence behind his resurrection and claiming come to me to have eternal life, but then the historical piece of him resurrecting, that's how you make this great balance as opposed to other would-be messiahs in our culture and beyond. Okay, now the reason I like your question so much is because I could be miscommunicating out here pretty easily. And what I would miscommunicate would be, I am absolutely positive that God exists 
and I am absolutely positive that Jesus is the truth, and that's a lie. There is no way that I can prove 100% that God exists, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, no way. And if I have been communicating that, I apologize, because that's a lie. But now think with me, please. Can I prove to you that the Rocky Mountains exist 100%? I don't think so. Why? That could be an illusion. Right? No? Let me give you another example. I was speaking at Columbia University in New York City, and a student came out and said, hey, Cliff, prove to me that you weren't created by a scientist in a vat this morning, and all of your memories were put in your head. I thought the dude was jerking me around, okay? I thought he was playing a game with me. He wasn't. He just got out of humanities at Columbia. And they had been discussing the philosophical problem, how do you know anything 100%? You don't. Why? Can you prove to me that your eyesight is telling you the truth about reality? There's a lot of evidence. Can't prove it. Let me ask you, can you prove to me your family of origin? Can you prove to me what happened yesterday in your life? I think you can give me a boatload of evidence, but I don't think you can prove it. Because to prove means to show that it cannot be another, another way. In other words, it's 100%. In fact, sir, I think there's almost nothing you can prove in life. If you mean by proof, 100%. No room for doubt. Do you buy that or not? Not really. Not really? Okay, good. Why? Because my life is the only thing I know of. Good. And I don't know of any kind of religious I know the Appalachian Mountains exist because I was there. I know that, um, I don't know, I know a lot of things because if I went there, I can have an experience like looking at it or something or yeah. trusting somebody that said that it's real and then going and seeing it and I know it's real and I know it exists. I can't convince everybody that something is true. Because there's always a room for possibility that it's false. Does that make any sense? We only have this life, and that's the one thing we're sure of. So we know everything around us exists. We can prove it, because I'm looking at it. You see what you, you said? I know that that's there, 100%, because I can see it. Sir, you got to then go back and ask, why do I trust my eyesight so much that I'm convinced that if my eyesight sees that tree, it's got to be there. Because there are a lot of brilliant philosophers who would say, wait a second, Cliff, why do you trust your eyesight to tell you the truth about reality? And I can't convince those professors, those philosophers. Intellectually, I can't convince them. I mean, what's the point of not thinking that your eyes are just? It's what you have. So you have yeah, it's what you have. But people have mistaken what they've seen. So you've got to be a skeptic and you've got to realize at times people thought they saw something but they didn't see it. That's healthy skepticism. You can't just say, oh, you say you saw that? Great, I believe it. No. 
What's the evidence that you don't go around having illusions? You know, a lot of people have illusions in this world. We'll, often they're in mental hospitals, okay? Or they're schizophrenic, right? So, but you see, my point is, you're right. I can't prove God exists. I can't prove Jesus is the truth. But there is so much stinking evidence that God exists. There is so much stinking evidence that Jesus Christ is reliable that for you or for me to reject Christ, for you and for me to be atheist, is a jump into la-la land. Why? Because so much of the way we live our lives is God does exist. So much of the way we live our lives is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, who said that? Oh, Jesus did. So much of our lives are based on love your enemy, love your neighbor even. I'd like to invite you to Grace Community Church, located at 365 Lukeswood Road in New Canaan, Connecticut. Our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. on Sundays. Hope you can join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. I hope you really enjoyed this broadcast for Give Me an Answer and that has inspired you and helped you on your walk with Jesus more. I'd like to remind you again to go ahead, if you liked what you have seen and you want to maybe share with others, go ahead and just like and subscribe to Next Generation Saints, no matter where you may be listening to uh, this at all. I've heard people talking about Apple and Spotify. That's the big one I'm on, is Spotify. So, until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless y'all, my dearly beloved.